Funding for this class is provided by Benjamin Arieh and family in loving memory of Raphael, son of Chacham Rabbi Chia. So whatever happened in the temple is happening today when Jews get together three times a day in Shul and daven together. And that also explains why we daven in a shul. What's so special about a shul? Okay, a minion. I can have a minion anywhere. I can do a minion in the storefront. <laughs> What's special about a shul? So in Ezekiel, it refers to the shul as a miniature temple. You should make for me a miniature temple. Because what is the idea of, of holiness? You know, we talk about a Beit HaMikdash, a holy house. What makes... This house holy. How can a physical house be holy? How can a physical location be holy? The holy mountain, the holy city, the holy land. How can a, a geographical place, a physical piece of real estate, how could this address be holy? What makes something physical holy? Holiness is something spiritual, is something abstract, is something. Could you say that two plus two is four is connected to this cup? It's a concept. 2 plus 2 is 4 is in China, and Siberia, wherever you are, 2 plus 2 is 4. It's not connected to time and space. How much more so spirituality? How much more so divinity and godliness? How could you connect godliness with a physical location and say God is present in the, in the Holy Land? No one calls Rome holy or Moscow holy or Washington or London. There's one spot on earth that's universally referred to as the Holy Land, and that's Israel. That's holy. Jerusalem is a holy city. The Temple Mount is the holy mountain. The Teit HaMikdash, the holy home. So what makes a place holy? And what does it mean when you say a, a day is holy? Yom Kippur is a holy day. What, I mean, God is present in Yom Kippur and He's present every day of the year. What, what makes a day holier than the, than the other day? What makes one Jew holier than the next? This is a holy Jew. A saint, a tzaddik, the rebbe. I mean, God is everywhere. So the definition of holiness is, of course God is everywhere. But the Hebrew word for this world is olam, which comes from the root word helem. God is hidden, God is concealed. You don't sense godliness. It's not palpable, it's not tangible. Holiness means where God is manifest, where God is accessible, where God is transparent. You can see it. You can feel it. And that's what it means, a holy day. When you say a day is holy on Yom Kippur, you can feel the holiness. You can sense it. It's palpable. We, we wear it in our sleeves on that day. We're dressed in white. We're fasting. You can feel and experience it. When you're sitting at the Seder, the Pesach Seder, eating the matzah, it's not just rituals and customs. You can feel, you can access the godliness and the holiness and your faith and the truth, and you feel intimate and close with Hashem. When you're standing at the Temple Mount, when you're standing at the Western Wall, you can feel the holiness. And Jews start crying. They feel, they're moved. Something stirs in your soul. It's, it's accessible. The holiness becomes accessible. Yes, every Jew, a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. But a holy Jew, a tzaddik, a rebbe, he senses the holiness. To him, godliness he lives and breathes godliness. He feels it, he experiences it, he lives it, he senses it. That's what inspires him. 
so too a, temp, a synagogue, a house that's dedicated to serve Hashem, a house that's dedicated to prayer, a house that's dedicated where 10 Jews come together to pray. And this house has been designated as a Beis HaKnesses, as a prayer house. Especially if it's not only a prayer house, it's also a house of study, of learning Torah. And especially if it's not only a house of, of prayer, a house of studying Torah, it's also a house of good deeds, of mitzvot. And this spot, this physical spot becomes holy. And when you walk into this spot, to this holy place, your godliness, the godliness within you becomes accessible. You can sense it. You can, it becomes palpable. You can feel Hashem is accessible. Especially if you combine the three. On a holy day, you go into a holy shul and you daven together with a Rebbe, a holy Jew. Then your neshama is totally accessible at that time. So this, that's the idea of a, of a mikdash ma'at, a miniature temple, why it's important where you daven. It's not enough just davening alone at home. Not even davening with a minion, but davening in a shul. Davening in a home that's dedicated to Hashem because of the holiness of the space. Why do Jews shake in davening? Which is uniquely a Jewish phenomenon. Most people, it's a very strange phenomenon. We take it for granted because, you know, when you walk into most houses of worship, everyone is sitting quietly, stiffly, meditating. You walk into a house and everyone is shaking like a lulav. <laughs> Why? Anyone? So one reason is given, as Sarah said, it's brought down the code of Jewish law was the soul of a person is compared to a flame, a candle. That's why you light a yard site. Someone that passed away, because the soul is compared to a candle, a flame. Because the flame is very spiritual. It's physical, but it's really spiritual. It's energy. The physical, in order to get the flame, the material has to give up itself, and the material turns into spiritual. To release the energy, the material has to burn, and it releases the energy, and then you have the flame. So a flame is very spiritual. That's why you can light a thousand, a thousand candles from one candle, and it doesn't take away from the candle. Anything else that's physical, you can't have two bodies in the same place. It's a clash. But a flame represents something spiritual. So the neshama, the soul, is compared to a flame. That's why you light a, uh, a flame, you light a candle for the neshama. And the nature of a flame is the flame leaps up flame is constantly jumping up. You have to force the flame down. If you don't have the wick, the proper wick, an oil, the flame will just you know, jump up and, and, and disappear because the flame is trying to become absorbed in its source. It doesn't want to continue its existence. Everything in this world wants to continue, extend its own existence. A flame is the exact opposite. The nature of the flame is, of the fire is, it wants to extinguish its existence. It's jumping up. You have to force it down. So the flame is constantly moving. It's like jumping up and down. It's constantly... It's the flame. The flame leaps. The flame jumps. So too, the Jew, the neshama, is like a flame. And therefore, we're constantly... We're like a flame is, is going up and down and we're moving and shaking. That's what's brought down in the Code of Jewish Law. The Baal Shem Tev said, 
that the reason why a Jew shuckles, the reason why a Jew shakes, he says it's like, it's like the moment of intimacy between husband and wife. It's not just cerebral, it's not just intellectual, it's not philosophical, it's not emotional, it's, it's total. The totality of your being. You must be 100% focused and concentrated. Now you, that can't be 99.9% focused. You can't be intimate if you're 99.9% focused. The essence of intimacy is totality. Every fiber of your being and every bone in your body is totally focused and concentrated and vibrating and moving and shaking and that engages your mind and your heart and your soul and your body and physical and spiritual. Every part of you is totally and fully engaged. So when a Jew is praying to Hashem, especially the Shmon the highlight of the prayer, the climax, the pinnacle, that's like a moment of intimacy between the Jew and Hashem. And, the, and that's why it's expressed physically. It's not just limited to, you, so to your mind, but you're physically moving. Every part of you is fully engaged. All my bones and all my being, as King David says, I say the words of praise to Hashem. King David danced with his whole being when he brought the ark back to, to, to Jerusalem. He danced away with abandon. His whole body was totally engaged in dancing before Hashem. It was like an act of intimacy when a Jew prays that it's not limited. It's every part of you is, is focused and centered and connected. And that's the hallmark of Judaism, where the action is the most important thing. It's not enough to be a philosophical Jew. It's not enough to be a mystical Jew. It's not enough to be an emotional Jew. It's not enough to be a spiritual Jew. First and foremost, it has to be physical. It's the deed. It's the action. Just like in marriage and in intimacy, it's the physical. It's not just the spiritual. It has to express itself in the physical. Because it touches the totality and the essence of your being. Judaism, our relationship with Hashem, touches the totality and the essence of our being. And that's expressed when a Jew is shuckles and shakes away. Why do we have to speak the words of Davani? Doesn't God know what we think? And if you don't say the words of Davani, which is also another strange phenomenon, we take it for granted, but we don't realize how strange it sounds. When a non-Jew walks into a shul, he's never seen anything like it in his life. You have a whole shul, and everyone is talking to themselves. We're saying the words of Davani. Who does this? No one. No one on earth does this. You come into a house of prayer, everyone sits quietly, you read, you close your eyes, either you're falling asleep or you're, or you're meditating. But, but everyone is talking to themselves. And without that, it's not prayer. Why? Prayer primarily is, should be something spiritual of the heart. I feel Hashem. I'm communing with Hashem. Why is it so important to physically move your lips? But prayer is a substitute for the sacrifices. 
sacrifices that were offered in the holiest spot on earth, in the holy temple. You walked into the temple, you would think the temple should be a serene place. You should have nice waterfalls. The Levite should play the music, beautiful music. It should be beautiful, serene. You walk into the temple, a slaughterhouse. <laughs> the bulls and the sheep and the goats and the slaughtering and sprinkling blood and burning the animal and the fats. I, I mean, this is a temple? This is a holy house? What's going on here? This is the holiest spot on earth. What are animals doing in a temple? What are bulls and sheep and goats and doves and turtle doves doing in a temple? But this gets to the heart and the essence of Judaism. This is why it's such a holy house and such a, a true house, a genuine house. Because in our relationship with Hashem, Hashem says, I'm not looking for your sublime self. I want all of you, every part of you, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I want the animal within you to be fully engaged in your Yiddishkeit. It's very nice to go off and meditate, to go on a tr uh, retreat, tune in, tune out, you know, divorce yourself, become a monk and a nun, run away from reality and tune in, and you have this sublime, otherworldly, beautiful spiritual experience. Hashem says, that doesn't interest me. That's very nice, but that's, that's not real. I want you, the animal within you, the fun-seeking, thrill-seeking, hot-blooded, passionate self, the Bacchanalian wild energy that we all have within us. That energy that, that you're running to Las Vegas with. I want that energy. <laughs> Bring me that animal. Bring me that. Because essentially, the animal is not evil. The animal is an animal. It's like a bull in a china shop. The animal wants to have fun. The animal wants life. It wants excitement. It wants thrill. It just, you want to be alive. You want passion. You want excitement. You want novelty. So you have to educate the animal. That's what education is. You have to teach the animal. You have to harness this energy. You're looking for fun. You're looking for life. You're looking for passion. You're looking for excitement. Plug into the source of life. Run to show. Don't run to Las Vegas. You're looking for real fun, real excitement, real passion, real life. It's only when you plug into the source of life that you truly come alive. You look in the eyes of a chassid, you see a sparkling, you see life, you see vitality, you see meaning and purpose, we're coming from somewhere, we're going somewhere. Because what are you looking for? If, if you had the option, if someone gave you a million dollars, but your life would be dull, and, and you wouldn't be interested. You, you want life, you want to be alive, you want to feel alive, and excitement, and passion. So when you realize that only when you're connected to the source of life, that's how you turn the animal around. The animal just wants to have fun. The animal doesn't mean bad. He doesn't associate, naturally, you don't associate fun, excitement, thrill with Torah, mitzvot, prayer, being selfless, doing uh, acts of goodness and kindness. So you have to educate. You have to educate. You want life. You want to truly be alive. You want to feel plugged in. You want to be vibrating with energy and vibrating with life. That's what you want. That's the sum total and the essence of what you're really looking for. But mistakenly, you think you're going to get it in indulgence and the material things and money, power, fame. 
which is a dead end. There's nothing there. It's not, you're not going to find what you're looking for. You'll never be happy. You'll never be satisfied. On the contrary, the more you have, the hungrier you are. The more you crave, the less satisfied you, you are. I'm trying to educate you, the animal. Your blood, your blood, your passion, your fat, your pleasure, throw it on the altar. That's where you're going to find, plug in, that's where you're going to start vibrating, that's where you're going to feel alive and feel connected and feel meaningful and uplifted and wholesome and wonderful and feel good about yourself and feel good about life. You want, you're looking for true joie de vivre. You're only going to find it when you plug in and connect with Hashem. That's the whole purpose of prayer. It's all about the animal. That is the focus. So if you're just praying cerebrally and meditating with your eyes closed and floating in the heavens and dancing with the angels, it's very nice, but where's the animal? Hashem says, where's the bull? Where's the sheep? Where's the goat? Where's the dove and and the turtle dove? Where's the blood? Where's the fat? Where's the reality, the real you, the fun-seeking, thrill-seeking self? So unless you move your lips, your lips means you're engaging the animal, you're engaging your body. Where do you have the strength to move your lips? It's from the food that you eat. Even when a person has no energy, you haven't eaten in three days, you, can't even, you don't even have the strength to move your lips. I can still think, but I don't have the strength to move my lips. Where do you get the strength to move your lips? That comes from the physical. Physically eating, taking care of yourself. So that's, that represents the animal within us. So Hashem says, if you're just approaching me and you're praying and meditating, if you're not moving your lips, if you're not engaging the animal within you, you're missing the whole point of prayer. Which brings us to the other point. Is it better to pray in Hebrew? Or is it better to pray in the language that you are familiar with? So there's an advantage to each. (laughs) On one hand, it's better to pray in the language that you understand. Why? There was a great uh, chassid. A babich chassid. And his custom was... He would pray, he would say every word in prayer, and then he would translate it into his language, which is Yiddish. That was his mamalosh. That was his language, Yiddish. Now, there's certain parts in prayer where you're not allowed to interrupt. So he asked his friends and his colleagues what they thought. Is, he, is it permissible? Are they allowed to? Is it considered an interruption? He's saying the Hebrew word, and then he's translating it into the Yiddish, word for word. So there's certain parts in prayer, if you're not allowed to interrupt, is it considered an interruption? And he himself was one of the greatest rabbis in Eastern Europe. So they turned to him and said, ah, we don't understand. Why do you have to enter into this whole question? I mean, you're brilliant. He knew the whole Talmud backwards and forward. You know the meaning of prayer. Why do you have to translate word for word? And even ask this question. So he smiled and he says... He says, because my animal soul doesn't speak Hebrew. (laughs) (laughs) You know, in the Hebrew, it's lofty, it's otherworldly, it's heavenly. It doesn't hit home. (laughs) The axe doesn't hit the wood. When you speak in Mamelashen, you speak in your language Yiddish or your language English, suddenly, wow, very powerful stuff. Suddenly it hits home. It gets personal, it gets real. So if the whole purpose of prayer is to influence and impact yourself and change and inspire and elevate, 
if you just if it's all Hebrew, you don't relate to it. You don't connect with it. It's not real. It's not personal. It's not hitting home. And then it's superior. It's better to pray in your language. And yet the prayers were written in the Hebrew. Because there is an advantage in the Hebrew which also answers the question why it's important to say the words of prayer. Because as the Kabbalists point out, God creates the world with the Hebrew language. This is the language of God. That's why it's called the holy language. It's not like any other language. Any other language, the dictionary is just man-made. That's why the dictionary changes every few years. We decide, we got together, we're going to call this a table, I'm going to call this a book. There's no reason we couldn't have called this a table and this a book. There's no connection between the word table and the letters table and a table. It's just we got together and whatever we decide, that becomes, there's no right and wrong. You know, people are very strict, it has to be this way. There's no right and wrong. Whatever people decide, that, that becomes the language. There's no, there's no correct. What do you mean correct? If it changes, it changes. If people decide differently, then it's differently. In Hebrew is different, however. Hebrew, the word itself, the Hebrew word, God creates everything in this world with the Hebrew language. The letters and the word represents the channel, the divine channel through which God is creating the table. And that's why it's specifically the word for table, because that's the energy how God is creating this item. And Aryeh, lion, these are the energy, the words, Aleph, Resh, Yud, Hey, the letters and the word, this is the channel. The combination and the channel of the divine energy that creates the lion and the tendencies of a lion, the characteristic of the lion, and the same as with a stone, even a stone, these specific letters. So when we pray, our words, these words actually channel the divine energy. When the rabbis of the great assembly instituted the Shemona Esrei and they chose their words very carefully, by divine inspiration, they were prophets. 120 rabbis, over 80 of them were prophets. These words actually channel the divine energy when you pray for healing. And you say it in the words, in the Hebrew words of healing, the Hebrew words as instituted by the rabbis, these words actually channel the divine energy and bring healing to your life. And that's why it's important to physically verbalize it. It's not enough to cerebrally think these words. Because you want to actually channel these words that it should manifest itself in the physical. Physical health and physical blessings, financial success. So there's an advantage to each. But first and foremost, it's important to understand what you're praying and speak in the language where it really has an impact on you and really hits home. And you really feel that you're, it's talking to you. So that leaves us with the last three questions. Is prayer self-serving? Prayer is called serving God. How is it serving God if I'm asking for my needs, my personal needs? And isn't it a kind of conflict with faith? If you have faith in God, you believe whatever God does is good. He knows exactly what he's doing. And does a child have to petition their parents, please feed me? Don't you think the parent feels the pain of the child more than the child does themselves? When the child is hurting, the parent is hurting a lot more. So doesn't God know what we're feeling and what we're experiencing? And isn't he in pain when we are in pain? And his pain is even greater than our pain? And yet, if this is happening to me, surely he knows what he's doing, and that's faith. 
when the ultimate tragedy happens, we make a blessing. We bless God with Hashem's name. We bless God not only for the good, even for the, for the tragedies, for the negative. Because we have faith in God. Whatever God does, God knows what He's doing. Whoever figured out 37 trillion cells, every one of us is a walking miracle, surely He knows what He's doing, even though we can't fathom it. So what are you praying for? You don't have confidence in the way God is running the world? You don't think He's doing a good job? What are we praying for? And actually, the Muslims, the word Islam comes from the word fatalism, to be fatalistic. Their attitude is exactly that. If you have faith in God, God knows what he's doing, and whatever happens, happens. Whatever is meant to happen is going to happen. And you surrender. Islam, you surrender. Whatever God does, does. Whatever God decides is good. It's good enough for me. Jews are the exact opposite. When we face a terrible decree, we storm heaven and earth. There's no stone that we don't unturn. There's nothing that we won't do. We'll fast and we'll pray and we'll do teshuva and we'll, we'll shake the heavens itself to change the decree. And this really gets to the heart and core of what Judaism is all about. And that's why it's called the service of God. It's not self-serving. It's a service of God. Yes, we're praying, we're petitioning for our personal needs. And we feel them very deeply. We care very much about our personal needs. When my pinky hurts, it's, very, it's the most important thing on earth. More important than millions of people dying, dying in Congo. My pinky is hurting. And that's my need. And I'm praying and I'm storming heaven and earth. Please stop this pain. Whatever my need is. So I feel it very deeply. But it's not self-serving. It's actually serving God. Mm-hmm. Because... You know, the position of the enlightened ones, the great philosophers, and the great mystics, was that a person who's enlightened could accept pain with equanimity, could accept death with equanimity. It's part of life. You can't have life if there's no death. What's the meaning of life if there's no death? You can't have up if there's no down. You can't have right if there's no left. You can't have joy if there's no pain. You can't have light if there's no shadow. You need a contrast. You need to define. They define each other. You can't have one without the other. You can't have goodness if there's no evil. If there's no tragedy, there would be no, no, no joy, no, no highlights or triumphs. So they define each other. So the enlightened person is someone who's so broad-minded and so enlightened and so mystical that he, he's wise enough to realize, don't get excited. Don't try to fight death. Don't try to fight evil. Don't try to fight pain. It's all part of the dance of life and you can't have one without the other. And, and that makes me enlightened. And it's only the masses, the fools, the simpletons, who can't make peace with death who fight evil, who fight pain and suffering. Comes along the Torah, comes along Judaism, and says, you're not enlightened, you're darkened. Those simple people that you feel so superior to, that you laugh at, and you scoff at, those simple people have more wisdom in their smallest pinky than you'll ever have. 
in all your years at university. Seven billion people instinctively know the deepest truth. What do they know? They know the absolute truth and absolute essence of God Almighty Himself. Yes, everything in life needs a contrast to define it because everything is relative. Except God is absolute. God doesn't need anything to define Him. He's not defined by anything outside of Himself. There's no contrast. He doesn't need a contrast. God is an absolute being. So if you believe in an absolute God, then you can have absolute life without death. You can have absolute joy without pain. You can have absolute goodness without, without evil. You can have absolute light without shadow. And this is not intellectual. It's not an abstract concept. This is a reality that 7 billion people know with every fiber of their being and every bone in their body. Look how we react to death. Most people, death is the horrible tragedy. Why? Logically, everyone we know dies. What's the big deal? It should be, okay, you live a life, you go to sleep, goodbye, and it's over. And yet, we just can't make peace with it. It's like something is torn out of your heart. You just, something is wrong. We feel with every fiber of our being, even though philosophically you can, the argument makes sense. Why, why should we be, why should it be such a tragedy? If you're enlightened, if you figure it out, it's, what's the big deal? And yet, it is the big deal. It's the biggest deal. Because we know we know with every fiber of our being, we know the reality of God, the reality of Hashem. We know this absolute truth. And therefore, we can't make peace with death. Because in a perfect world, in God's world, in an absolute world, there should be no death. When God created the world in the Garden of Eden, Adam was programmed to live forever. Death is unnatural. There was no evil. The evil is completely unnatural. Pain and suffering is completely unnatural. And we know that, not just intellectually, abstractly. The simplest person knows that with every fiber of his being and every bone of his body. Because God is not an idea. God is. God is reality. There is nothing else. And the reality of God is open and revealed and manifest to all 7 billion people. And that's what prayer is. Of course I have faith. And I believe whatever God does is good and He knows what He's doing and knows exactly what He's doing and He's running this world. But there's something wrong with this picture. How is it possible in, in, in God's world? God is absolute and absolutely good. In God's world, there should be no pain. There should be no evil. And if, if there is pain, something terribly is wrong with this picture. I can't make peace with this picture. I have to storm heaven and earth and pray to Hashem to remove this pain and suffering. Because that's not what God wants. When God created the world, and that's why Mashiach is so essential and central to a Jew's thinking. Because Mashiach is that world where there'll be all good. There will no longer be any, any death. There will no longer be any pain and suffering. Not only will there no longer be any death. Those who died will be resurrected. The righteous ones will be resurrected. No more pain and suffering. A world of absolute joy, absolute light, absolute good. And that's what prayer is. Yes, we feel it so deeply, so you can say, well, superficially, I feel it so deeply because it's my need. My pinky hurts. It's my ego. It's my need. And I care more about myself than anything else in the world. But on a deeper level, why am I storming heaven and earth? Because 
there's something offensive here. Something is wrong with this picture. The, the painting is crooked. You see a painting that's crooked, there's no way in the world you're going to make the painting even more crooked. The fact that it bothers you is only because you know the way it should be. And when it's off, it bothers you, it offends you. So every one of us, it's hardwired within us. The truth and reality of God, of an absolute God, of an absolute truth. And therefore, it offends us. Something is wrong with this picture when, when things are not right. And there's pa human pain and suffering. And there's evil. We can't make peace with it. We can't philosophically just make peace with it. Well, this is the way, and you can't have one without the other, and don't get so excited. No, we get excited. And we storm heaven and earth. And we don't make peace with death. We mourn on death. The Torah says a person who doesn't mourn on death is not an enlightened one. He's a cruel person. He's inhumane. There's something very wrong with that individual. It's not just an emotional reaction because we're just so emotional and we're not thinking clearly. It's a genuine reaction because there's something wrong with this picture. So prayer touches on the deepest truth on the absolute essence of God. That's why you're praying. You're talking to the essence of God. It's your essence to the essence of God. It's person to person, so to speak. It's, it's the deepest truth. And that's why you're serving God. When you pray and asking for your needs, you are serving God. And that's why you see on Rosh Hashanah, the holiest day, which part of davening do we get most excited about? The part of davening that we talk in the Sanatokov. We're talking about who will live and who will die and who will have a tranquil year. And We're talking about the physical. And that's the part that every Jew, the soul is stirred and we get all excited because that is the holiest prayer. That is the deepest truth. That is the deepest moment. You're not just petitioning for your own needs. In God's world, how could there be a world where, where something is wrong and something is off? So this really gets to the crux and the essence of Yiddishkeit. And that's why true prayer was truly founded by the patriarchs, the first Jews. Because the true core and essence of prayer, this is so Jewish, that belief in an absolute God, that belief in a personal God, this gets to the heart, the essence of Judaism. And the last question, and then we'll open up for questions, how do you prepare for prayer? What's the best way to prepare for prayer? One way to prepare for prayer is by giving tzedakah. As Rabbi Lazar, before he prayed, he would find a poor person and give tzedakah. Firstly, when you help someone else, God will help you. God is interactive. You want Hashem to have mercy and compassion for you? If you show mercy and compassion, and you want the prayers to be answered physically and tangibly, so if you physically and tangibly help a poor person, help out another person, you feed them, you take care of them, you help them out, you, take a, you write a check, you give a dollar bill, you, you do something physical, then your prayers will also be answered. And he would go, they would go looking and searching to find a poor person to give before they pray to Hashem. Also, the act of tzedakah, as we studied in the Tanya, has the power to trigger the deepest levels of faith within you, the deepest levels of your soul. It has the power to bring out the deepest depth of your soul. It's counterintuitive. How, by me physically giving a coin, or me physically giving a dollar bill, or giving a sandwich to a poor person, how can that trigger the deepest spiritual experiences within myself? But that's the divine truth. That's the power of tzedakah. That's one thing. Another way to prepare for prayer is by studying 
the secrets of the Torah, studying the Zohar or studying Hasidut, when you study about godliness, and as it also says in the Code of Jewish Law, that before you pray, a person has to think about how insignificant, inherently insignificant we are, and, and yet about the greatness of Hashem. In other words, as insignificant as we are, yet Hashem gave us the privilege that we have the opportunity to approach Hashem. We take three steps back and we take three steps forward. Like we're physically approaching Hashem. We're approaching, we're having this audience with the King of Kings, with Hashem Himself. Hashem gave us the ability to approach Him, to speak to Him, to petition Him. So as insignificant as we are and how great, infinitely great Hashem is, yet Hashem is speaking to us. He's communicating with us. He allows us to speak to Him. He allows us to communicate with Him. He allows us to praise Him. He allows us to thank Him. He allows us to petition Him. He even allows us to complain to Him. But we have that connection, that ability. So as a preparation to put yourself in the mind frame, the proper mind frame for prayer, in the proper frame of mind for prayer, you have to think about our insignificance, inherent insignificance, per se, and the infinite greatness of Hashem, and how in prayer we're able to connect with Hashem. And that's especially when you study the Zohar, you study Hasidut, Hasidic philosophy, when you study about godliness, it has the effect. You're learning about godliness, you're learning about the infinite, you're learning about Hashem, the greatness of Hashem. You perceive and sense the reality of Hashem. And that's what puts you in the frame of mind of prayer, of proper prayer. And there's a third thing that helps, and that is going to the mikvah. For men, going into the mikvah, um, mikvah is associated with purity, and going into the mikvah, especially after a person had, had, uh, had an omission or had relations with their spouse, that going into the mikvah is commendable. There was a time when a Jew was not allowed to pray before he went to the mikvah, but legally a person is allowed to pray before going to the mikvah, but ideally a person should go to the mikvah. Maimonides says he never ever in his life ever prayed before going to the mikvah um, after he had relations. And also we find interestingly that Maimonides, when he discusses the laws of a convert, so he says if someone comes to the community and we just assume that he's a convert, we don't have any proof, and without proof you're not allowed to marry someone who claims to be a convert. The person can't just come and say, I'm a Jewish. Uh, who, why, what, when, where? Where's the proof? Where, where's your mother? Where's your grandmother? Where's... But if someone comes along, he says, I'm not Jewish, but I converted. So he's not allowed to marry because we don't have any proof that he converted. Where's the bed din? Where's the rabbis who converted you? Where's the court? Show us. But if, if he behaves Jewish and he claims that he's Jewish and we see that he's behaving as a Jew, and what's the sign that we know he's behaving as a Jew? And he says there's one sign. <laughs> He doesn't say he's putting on tefillin. He says, what's the sign? That he goes to the mikvah. <laughs> a man is going to the mikvah. Today, you're not even obligated to go to the mikvah. You could daven without going to the mikvah. But he goes to the mikvah. So the technical reason why Maimonides uses this as an example is because, you know, he can say, I'm not Jewish, but I volunteer to do the mitzvah. 
But going to the mikveh to purify yourself, if he's a non-Jew, there's no point in going to the mikveh because the mikveh doesn't work for a non-Jew. So he's, his status won't change. Why is he bothering to go to the mikveh? So if he's bothering to go to the mikveh, that means he must be Jewish. And he knows that if, since he's Jewish, now he converted, genuinely converted in the, with the proper rabbis and beddin. So now if he goes to the mikveh, that will change his status. But it's interesting. That's the first thing my mother says. How do you know someone is a Jew? How, he's behaving like a Jew? How does a Jew behave? He goes to the mikveh. But that's only if you had relations. But then, in addition to that, there's another aspect of going to the mikveh. Hasidim go to the mikveh every day. The Balshamta would make a point of instituting Hasidim go to the mikveh every day before they pray. Because the priest, before he did the service in the temple, would go to the mikveh. You're not allowed to do the service in the temple until he goes to the mikveh. Every one of us has a temple within us. So when we start the day and we're about to serve Hashem and we're like the priest in our personal temple, first thing you have to do, you have to go to the mikveh. And the Baal Tev said that where mikveh takes a person, even though it's not a mitzvah, but it takes a person to the loftiest levels. Because when you immerse in the mikveh, you totally immerse yourself. The word for mikveh, for dipping into the mikveh in Hebrew, is called tevilah. If you turn the letters around, it, it's the word, it formulates the words of bitul, literally self-nullification. If you stay in the water, you'll literally be self-nullified. But the idea of reaching a place of egolessness, you go into the mikveh, that you're connecting to a place that's beyond you, it's beyond, transcends yourself, transcends your being, transcends your ego, total immersion, like in the source of life, connecting with Hashem, connecting to the, the source. And when you come out of the mikveh, it's like you, you, you're coming from a different place and it, it puts you in a whole different frame of, frame of mind, a whole different state of being. It, and it purifies you. And purification is connected to prayer. Because the sacrifices, it says, um, led to a Hashem response to the sacrifices. Hashem says it's a pleasing aroma. And purity is connected with the sense of smell, with the sense of aroma. So when a person is pure, he gives off. There's an aroma, there's an aura around the person. When a person is pure, there's a smell, there's a scent, a, a fragrance, a spiritual fragrance, like a pleasant fragrance. When a person is impure, they give off those who are sensitive, those who can see auras and those who are sensitive to these things. The person gives off the exact opposite of a pleasant aroma. So... The idea of purity is very much connected to the idea of prayer. It's a substitute for sacrifices, which is a pleasing aroma to Hashem. So when you go into the mikveh, it gives off that beautiful, beautiful aroma that, put, that uh, prepares you for prayer. So these are all steps that help you prepare for prayer. But prayer needs preparation. You don't just jump into the prayer. So these two classes, last week and this, look at it as the preparation. <laughs> And next time we meet, we're going to start with the Siddur. We're going to start with the Moda Ani, the first prayer that we say. Every Jew says when they wake up in the morning. Mm-hmm.